Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Welcome back, Olivia. Hey Micah, long time no podcast. That's true. You took a little vacation. I did. I, it, it was nice. I saw the ocean and watched the sunset every day. That's beautiful. I love that. I love, yeah. And so, it's a good excuse last week to, you know, just give an extra little plug to our first interview that we had done with Lin Yoon, which oh my gosh. we were all very proud of, I think. She had so many insightful things to say. She also enjoyed our conversation. And just so everyone knows, we have some exciting people lined up in the future. So keep an eye out to hear. We're recording that. our next one pretty soon. Somebody with type design history, somebody with graphic design history, somebody like doing stuff in the community. It's going to be really cool. Yeah. And it's going to be released in the next couple of weeks. So we do have a deadline for ourselves. And we have a really cool theme to the next few weeks. So we have actually been working really hard on getting our uh, revised, updated, everything you need to know about font licensing book ready to go. We're doing final edits with our awesome editor, Candice. And we are getting ready to like make a page on our site so that you can buy it direct from us or buy it on Amazon. We've got a couple weeks before I think we'll be able to launch that too. But so that has given us this fun theme of font licensing stuff for the next month. Like let's make these nerd alerts really useful information about font licensing. So give us a tease of what we're talking about this week. Today we're talking about all of the companies and brands that are getting custom fonts made for their branding. And we're talking about why it's not just a trend and why companies are doing it and why there's been a huge influx lately. I think that's a big question and there's a lot of visibility around it. So I think this is going to be one that like everyone can enjoy. Everyone's, you know, takes a part in like the culture that we're chatting about today. So it's going to be really fun, really interesting. And I even learned a bunch of new insights during my research this week. That's good. And that helped you and me and Hugo come up with curated links this week that relate to custom typography for brands and what fonts brands use and that thing. So the links that we have this week, they're not all about that, but they're going to be fun to chat about. 100%. And starting with our first link that I'm super excited to chat about. I find it so fascinating. And for everyone in the U.S., this might be like slightly delayed news, but it's about the logo for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's campaign. So it was worked on by Heffler and Co. And they talk about their process very briefly. It's a short article, so easy to digest. But what I found so interesting is that because this was, you know, a campaign logo, they weren't able to, like, because no one actually knew who the VP was, they had to design potential logos for every single potential VP that the press was talking about for Joe Biden's campaign. So there was the Biden- It's insane. So there's the Biden logo that was existing before he chose the VP. But every time there was press about a potential VP, which he had a bunch of them, if you guys all remember not so long ago, the team for Joe Biden's creative advisor, Robin Canner, had a team that would literally make new iterations for every potential VP. So by the time that Biden announced, they had a logo to share to the world. This is insane. I can't believe that that's the way they run it. Like they can't trust their design team with a potential decision ahead of time right that 
is wild. I mean, I'm sure the team was super excited that they chose Harris because it is really attractive, like very straightforward <laughs> logo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Typographically. But I mean, like, imagine if the name of the VP was like 10 letters long. And, you know, that's a big question. Eisenhower is a much longer name than, you know, Biden. I'm not saying that that's a thing, but these are things that, like, logo designers have to think about for campaigns. It's wild. They have to think about the shape of the name and, like, what letters are being used. A name with a bunch of W's and M's is going to be way longer than a name with a bunch of I's. Mm, that's a very good point, just from the mere shape of the letters. Right? so wild so really excited to share this like very interesting little insightful piece that it's not like a long article or anything it just gives a little bit of insight into how they got there I, and i think it's really fun to tell everyone that the designers had to make logos for every single potential vp <laughs> and i wish they were gonna i wish they'd release them well that would that would be very confusing for the non-designer community I know, but I'd be so excited to just like see like how they were problem solving for all these other potential candidates. Like Warren, for example, if Elizabeth Warren is the VP, like she has a W to begin her name, that left alignment would not be as nice as mm. it is with the B and the H and Biden Harris. And even the That's way the S point. cuts off nicely and lines with the N, like it all feels like very cohesive and like locked into a grid. That where like that, would that is well done i have to admit you know what maybe they'll maybe they'll make like a book and release a book that'd be a good way to release it i know. i don't think they if, any, will. if anybody at, at h and co is listening you know do that yes this is what we want or anyone at the joe biden campaign and in, in general We'd you know trickle this down please all right our next article is very fun i'm super excited to share this it's from pimp my type which is a new youtube channel by oliver Schoendorfer. I practiced that a couple times before I said <laughs> this aloud. This um, is funny because I saw he launched this channel, I don't know, a month ago or something with like a teaser video that was extremely quirky and weird. And I saw it on my Twitter feed and I was like, I'm definitely going to subscribe to this because I have no idea what this is going to be. And then he made a point to email us, I think last week and be like, hey, I released this video and, you know, the league audience might like it if you're interested in sharing. Yes, I thought it was really enjoyable as a type nerd, but also as an educator. I thought it actually did a really good job and, you know, I didn't even know this coming into watching the video and reading the accompanying article too, so you can choose your medium that you prefer, that it's really a lesson on tabular versus lining figures and when are the right times to use each of them. So the whole basis of this video is that the clock on our Apple iPhone displays, our main clock that we just see when we touch our home screen, uses proportional figures, which means that the width of each number is proportional to the width of the number. So a one is quite narrow, while a two is a wider number. And that's just the, how proportional figures work. That's our typically regular figures that we see day to day. And then there are these different kinds of numbers called tabular figures, and tabular figures are actually all the same width. So if you align numbers in a column, it you know can all line up vertically and horizontally. And so something that bothered him, which is the basis of this video, is that Whenever a number on the clock on your iPhone changes from a narrow number to a, a wide number, like example, 1210, the minute changed to 1211, 
your numbers are using proportional figures. And so therefore the number becomes narrower and it jumps to recenter itself from 1210 to 1211. He explains like why that happens and goes through what proportional figures are. And then he actually mocks up what it would look like if San Francisco, the Apple font had tabular figures for their clock. And it actually did not look very good because it was too widely spaced. There was this like big gaping hole between the ones because the ones are actually quite narrow in the tabular figures. And then he went as far to mock up what would happen if he added serifs to the ones to actually, you know, bring them wider and fill up the space better. And it looks pretty neat. But, you know, you can say that it doesn't really align with the rest of the aesthetic of San Francisco Apple's font. So in conclusion, he said that the original design is probably best, which I think is funny. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to actually dissect this and something that he brought up in the video that I thought was actually quite interesting was that there are other timekeepers in Apple um, apps that do use tabular figures, so figures that have the same width across. And that is the playback for your music. When you look at the time that goes by in your playback, that's mm -hmm. actually using tabular figures, so the numbers don't jump around to you know recenter themselves. And then your stopwatch actually and your timer uses tabular figures too as you count down, so the numbers aren't jumping to recenter themselves on the interface. That's just silly. If they're using it in one place, why are they not using it in another? Yeah, I think it was just like a really interesting dissection. And, you know, people might look at this and be like, this is so detail oriented. Like who actually looks at your like clock as it changes the minute? Sure, you can argue that. But I think it was just a really interesting dissection as to like the numbers that we see that we often take for granted and what we should be considering. Because I think a lot of designers out there probably are designing for some sort of timekeeping typographic element at some point, you know, in their design career. And more than that, what I really loved, Olive, if you're, if you're listening, this is, a, this is an awesome way that you have taught somebody the difference between old style and lining numbers and proportional and tabular numbers, which are things that beginning designers and design students and even sometimes professionals just forget. You know, like these are terms that are sometimes hard to remember. And you applied this beautiful illustration that is something we're used to in everyday life, which I think is a great example of what a good teacher Oliver is. Totally agree. And I think, you know, if you're listening to what I'm saying here and it seems too technical, definitely check out the article because there's great ways to illustrate what I was discussing earlier. So thank you, Oliver. That's exciting. My next article that I have in front of me is also fun. I shared it with my students <laughs> in my class this week, and it is the font behind 30 famous logos. Reverse engineers a bunch of the logos that we're really familiar with. And while, you know, it doesn't say that these are the fonts exactly that are used in the logo, because oftentimes logos will modify fonts, it's, it, you know, tells you which fonts are used as the basis for a typographic wordmark for famous companies. So some of those companies include, you know, PayPal, Instagram, Adobe, LinkedIn, In-N-Out Burger. And I have to say, I was really surprised by a lot of these. I did not know that LinkedIn used Avenir as a basis for its typography. I thought that was great. TikTok uses Gotham. Oh yeah, my gosh. That, was a, that was a good shock. And even like, it, I never thought about Toy Story. Toy Story uses Gil Sands. Yeah. I just assumed it was like a totally custom illustrated type, you know? Right. And I, I Gil Sands also just always looks so wildly different when it's in the extra extra like bold or black version i think yeah. that's what they use for toy story it becomes like really playful so i don't know i just thought this was super interesting you realize how many you know companies use helvetica and futura and it's just so interesting to see these typefaces used on different brands used to express 
totally different missions and purposes, but... A few of these, too, I was like, I don't know if I believe this. Like, I get why you think it might be that, but I don't I don't know. And so we were looking at uh, Skype, and it said that Skype was set in Arial. And I was like, who would set a logo in Arial? And so we looked it up, and we started comparing the letter forms. And it was like, oh, shoot, this is set in Arial. Maybe the rest of these are actually right. Micah, you thought that it was VAG rounded, but... They actually do have VAG rounded for Reddit. Reddit yeah. uses VAG rounded. Which that surprised me too. And this is like the stuff we looked at in art school because designers always love the same fonts, you know? Yeah. And, and this is almost a list of what your art school design teacher would tell you. Only use these fonts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which yeah. is funny to me. Cool. But yeah, super cool article. I like this one too. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Our next one, also just so much typographic delight for your eye, is from the LA Times. And it's actually reporting on the unique logos for the 2028 LA Olympics, which I did not realize U.S. is hosting the Olympics in 2028. Yeah, that's shocking. I mean, that's in a while, too. That's That's not soon. Yeah, eight years is a while. I don't even know what day or year it is. I'm just living in this like soup of whatever time sphere is existing right now. But, like, yeah. is the U.S. really still going to be around in eight years? <laughs> right, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, it's really fun to look at. So apparently for the 2028 Summer Games, they asked like, a whole bunch of people. It says that the LA 28 organizers put out dozens of calls to look for, you know, different logo ideas. And so the logo as it stands right now is actually an animated logo of a bunch of different illustrated A's for the LA 28 and the L28 stay the same. And it's just really exciting. They even asked Billie Eilish, Reese Witherspoon, some streetwear designers, a chef, a tattoo artist. So like even beyond the bounds of just designers. And they paired up the non-designers actually with designers. Mm. And it was just really interesting. They actually got, you know, input from athletes as well of what they want expressed. And they paired the athletes with the designer. It's just like a really unique approach to this. And it's really enjoyable to look at. Like I, I don't even know how many iterations are are of this A in the LA, but every one of them, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, wait, that's cool. Oh my God. So they did find a, a really interesting way to make this system out of it that is both like coherent and unexpected. Right. And I, I actually really enjoy the typeface used for the L28, just like really strong and grounded and actually works quite well with all the illustrations moving through it. This is such a good instance of contrast and affinity. Nice where like one. there's such a drastic contrast between the the like they're they're changing out the A in all of these. That's mm-hmm. what's unique in all of these things. And like the the similarity between the other letters is so strong that you were saying with the Biden and Harris logo, it makes this extremely strong grid where you can put any crazy mm-hmm. item in it and it's three quarters grounded and one quarter interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it just really works. And I'm, I'm excited to start seeing this implemented in ephemera within the next eight years. <laughs> if we get there, you know, <laughs> hold on tight, everybody. It's already been a wild 2020. I don't know what this whole decade holds for us. It's a big question. It is very cool inspiration, though. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed it. So definitely check this one out. Another article that had awesome type inspiration is our next one. And that is from It's Nice That. And the title is Elliot Grunewald's bold display typefaces deserve to be read big. And it's a really great article interviewing this 
you know, graphic designer that is working in type design as well. He's not just one or the other. And he's just making these really funky, inspired by the 70s typefaces. And a lot of them are inspired by Urbu Balan. So I naturally am obsessed with all of these shapes. But just like really chunky, new feeling typefaces that I'm just thoroughly enjoying. It's funny that you describe it as new feeling because every one of these feels like it's been around since the 70s to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like actually the first one that they display up there, I'm trying to get the name, it's called Wine, W-I-E-N, is like a 2020 version of like a 70s one. You're like, it still looks like the 70s. Okay, <laughs> Olivia. Yeah. I can't help it. I, like, I, I do think it's it's very well done and I like it a lot. And especially, you know, personally, like I've been really interested in some of the weird like late 60s early 70s like murder noir books that are turning into movies where they need graphic design Mm -hmm. like the Agatha Christie movies that they've been doing the last couple years there's another one coming out soon I'm so excited about yeah that's like also uh, for anyone that's trying to yes yeah see this reminds me of the Knives Out font which I love I just think that's so cool and interesting yeah also like again Stranger Things is a good reference for the type of you know, type styles we're talking about right now. But I love like seeing this being revived. I feel like for a long time, people ignored those type styles, at least like, you know, I feel like when I was in school, I feel like recently there's been revivals. There's a new font called Marvin Visions that I'm also really obsessed with that is similar to these, you know, Mm -hmm. monoline. But this also leads me to say, have you been watching Lovecraft Country on HBO? No, it's nice that you assume that I have HBO, but. Sorry. I was like, so it's this like revival and Jordan Peele is one of the producers. So mm. H.P. Lovecraft was a big science fiction writer, I believe, although he was like incredibly racist. So it's this revival of the like Lovecraftian stories with this science fiction theme to it. But and then it talks about like race in America in the mid-century. And there's definitely get out vibes to it. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but it's very good. And the logo feels like in this style, it's a revival of Ubalan font, but the freaking title slides are so cool. I love them so much. I don't know if like I have to write an article about them. I don't know why no one has written an article about them, but it's also in this like 70s, 80s style and they're just done so beautifully. It's just huge type that just fills a landscape screen and just like it's just markers to show where they travel to and their location, but I think they're so beautiful and so eerie and I get so excited every time like twice in an episode there's a title card that's awesome i love that you're getting so into title sequence design like that was when so i went to school for motion graphics and that was like the epitome of awesome projects to work on like i was so obsessed with title design because there's always an opportunity to like it's designing posters for musicians or something where it's sort of like everything is a unique project and you get to like go real crazy with it i'm i mean like i also think some of these you know like knives out that we reference they have this really great historical grounding as to like how they decide to you know make these title slides and i think that's also something that like makes me excited like puts me in a time and place like yeah this really you need to find um, an article for next week so that we can we can share oh, i have one in the 
in the back of my pocket right now. Right. Awesome. So our next article, we're doing so many like cool, just like culture and branding articles this week, but it's from Transform Magazine and they're talking about different rebrands happening like in the world as of late. And they show like a few different brands from across the world. My favorite one is the Afterpay rebrand, just because I'm a, I'm a little bit more familiar with this brand than the other ones. I thought it was really interesting they got a new logo, but also like a whole new branding suite. And they worked with Pantone to actually make their own signature color. That's crazy. Like, what the heck? It's just like this light mint green, which makes sense because as someone that used to have a pick through Pantone's, freaking teal colors are so hard to match. Like <laughs> there's such a limited amount of teal colors. In fact, I remember I used to have to work on Tiffany brands and they have their own bespoke color. And I'd work with a printer. We do like samples of a hundred teals to see which one was the closest to tiffany that is wild do they have so to pay is- pantone the organization to have their custom color like how do we get league green yeah right i mean it sounds like they have just total collaboration they had someone from pantone color institute talk about the rebranding alongside Afterpay. so i'm curious if it was a commission or if it was like some sort of partnership well whoever knows someone at pantone send them our way the Pantone factory is in New Jersey. Did you know that? Really? I want to get a tour. We should schedule a tour. That would be fun. Right? Now, I was saying on this list, my favorite was the next one, which is Holston, which I know nothing about. It's apparently a beer. And it reminded me of the article that we talked about a few weeks about, about King Arthur Flowers rebrand. Mm. How they kept the same idea to it so that you would still recognize it on the shelf but just cleaned it up, added a little bit of weight to it so that it was a little bit more grounded as a whole. I thought they did a good job with this one here. I agree. It is quite an attractive rebrand. They use color really nicely. I like this like dark green and then turquoise and then bright red combo. It's a good one. All right, so there's some other great brands you should definitely check out on there, but those were our favorites. Now is actually a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. Um, At the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. Nice. I think we have one more awesome article to share before we nerd alert. Yeah. Our last article we're sharing this week is about data visualization, and it talks about the seven deadly sins. Which, this is not a short article. This is long and quite comprehensive. 
Yeah. And there's lots of really good examples. I think he does a really good job of proving his points of why certain data visualizations don't work with examples of how you can improve it, which I think is actually quite helpful instead of just like railing on, you know, these common, you know, themes that we see with infographics telling like why they're not necessarily working and how to just make things more efficient. And a lot of the criticism just comes from, you know, people that are trying to make the data visualization more visually interesting and maybe add a little bit too much fluff to them. And that actually can be hurtful because data visualization is supposed to be, you know, much more functional than it is like an ornate thing you want to stare at. So we have some pretty interesting examples of how to, you know, just streamline it, make it more effective. I think that I really liked this article because, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think we're looking at a lot of graphs every day. I think a lot of designers are th out there are being tasked with making infographics. And I think it's great to be sharing this information to make sure everyone can get like the best, clearest, mo most factual um, data that they need. I'd say one of the pieces that I did really love is uh, number two on this list is basically don't use nested donuts. And that immediately makes me think of Apple activity. You know, the like activity monitor. Oh my monitor. gosh, I didn't even think about that, yeah. The people who love that have the Apple Watch and it tracks extra data about how you're moving and stuff. The nomenclature of being like, ah, oh, check your rings for the day. And mm -hmm. I always looked at that and I was like, this is awful. I do really? not understand what I'm looking at. This is totally unhelpful. It's colorful and interesting to look at, but I never gleaned any information out of it. And it was validating to see someone not only say, hey, that's on point, but also here's why. Yeah. I thought Which, it was interesting hearing the why behind of it because he was talking about like the inner ring of these donut charts actually don't carry like as much visual weight. Like there's visual mm. weight that's not evenly distributed, which I thought was quite interesting. And because the circles are different shapes, the percentages mm -hmm. are, are naturally different amounts. So like 75% on a smaller inner circle mm -hmm. is going to look like less than 75% mm -hmm. on the outer bigger circle. Yeah. And that's just 100%. confusing. And it's, and it's hard to read numbers and rings anyway. There's a lot of very practical, useful, very visual examples, which is what I loved. Yeah. Cool, cool. All right, Micah, it's time. I love how serious you get every single time. There is a sound effect being worked on as we yeah, speak. Yeah. I, sure. I got a status update two days ago. It's your freelancer boyfriend in line. I did get a status update. He was trying to make it done for this week, uh, this week, and I'll guilt him. Tell him we perfect. All right. So what we're talking about this week is custom fonts for brands and why commissioning a font is more than just a trend. So much in interesting information out in the world. I think we should really be talking about this. Let's just set this up by saying what we're talking about here is that in the last few years, especially, this has always been true, but especially in the last few years, there's been a lot of companies that are switching their branding fonts, their main fonts, sometimes in their logo, sometimes in their other materials, sometimes in both, they, they switch their fonts from something that they're paying for, someone, you know, someone made a font and they are licensing it to use it for their brand, to hiring someone to make a font for their brand specifically. Great. That was an awesome setup. So, you know, this is a relatively new trend. And I think it's because 
of the onset of both, you know, digital licensing, having to create typography that it feels cohesive on the web in your print products and any other interfaces that you're developing, definitely a plus. And I think a lot of brands are seeing other brands do it and see it work successfully for them and want to implement it. So one of the main reasons I do want to discuss as to why brands would like to do this is because of licensing. And I think that's not often talked about, you know, when a fresh new font comes out from a brand. People like to talk about the aesthetics and, oh, I hate this. I love this. But the end of the day, it's saving, it can save them millions of dollars per year. And I know one company that was very transparent about this was IBM. And IBM was using Helvetica. And it's really interesting because a representative from IBM, Todd Simmons, who's the VP of brand experience and design, said this all started because he realized, first of all, the brand was not reflected through anything other than the logo. There was nothing that felt IBM that was part of their identity besides the logo that felt very IBM. Mm. And they were also playing over a million dollars of licensing fees for using Helvetica, which is supposed to be over a million dollars a year to use Helvetica as their main branding font. Some people might not understand why that is the case. Like why would paying for a font for a company like that cost more than a million dollars. So I believe it's monotype that they were licensing from. And I also believe it's monotype that has us in one of their licensing clauses is that the higher the revenue of a brand, the more they're actually required to pay. But, Mm. you know, there's also, you know, print and web and interfaces. Like I can imagine. Like each of these things usually is a license that you have to buy. If you are an individual designer trying to design something like, you know, when you're buying a font license, you have to buy one for the web. And often they want to know that you're only doing it for, you know, 200 page views a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so the price goes up, the more page views you have just for the web. And then there's a separate license that you'd have to buy for your designers to be able to make images, to bring it into mm-hmm. Photoshop and make a poster or an ad or something. Really and then, funny. you know, yeah, if you have any sort of books that you publish or apps that you publish that use the fonts, you know, in order to match the branding, those are also separate licenses. And so suddenly, if you combine that with a company that you're buying it from where it matters what the revenue is, that could easily balloon into, shoot, each of these licenses ended up being $500,000 and suddenly this is a giant bill. Exactly. I also know that Netflix was transparent about that as well before they came out with their Netflix Sans um, and got that commissioned. So that's huge. And you know, the aesthetic reason as well, I know for IBM, this is a really well-applauded typeface for several reasons. One of them is because, you know, Helvetica was very neutral and IBM didn't want to be neutral. And they have this huge suite now of IBM Plex Sans, IBM Plex Serif, IBM Plex Mono that actually has some characters. I think one big critique of custom typefaces is that a lot of them end up looking very similar. And if you take a look at, you know, Serial for Airbnb, Netflix Sans, you know, even maybe the Uber font, Uber Move, they all do look very geometric and clean and friendly. And I think IBM Plex actually was very useful because it actually has some differentiation from these other ones. Um, Also, IBM Plex is open source, which is like incredible gift to the design community. I think they really made their point of being like, okay, so we're going to commission all this money to create this huge family. And I think as like a PR move for them as well to say, you know, we also care. We want to give back to the community that like, you know, we're 
engaging with. So I thought that was interesting. But um, I think there's a there's a undescribed marketing angle to that too. You know, from 100%. like the custom commissions that the league has done in the past. There is some goodwill there of some company hires us to expand a typeface, which has happened in the past. You know, with the e network, with like a couple news sites. We were talking about doing this with Progressive once. Like these companies came to us and said, hey, we want a custom font for our brand for the same reasons that we're talking about here, essentially Mm -hmm. cost. And we like the idea of then opening that back up to the community. We love open source. We think that's a cool thing. But also like open source is an opportunity to advertise for their brand. It's people talking about IBM's new font because everybody can. Yeah. But one other reason, you know, there's licensing, there's aesthetic reasons, custom typefaces are made for brands, also for support for other languages. So for a long time, when when brands were licensing, you know, fonts that weren't custom to their own brand, they'd have issues where they try to find scripts outside of the Latin alphabet, such as, you know, Greek, Russian, Chinese, Arabic. And, you know, if the main font they were using that they started with didn't have scripts in these languages, they had to use lookalikes and then license for whatever those lookalike fonts were. And it just, you know, add up to their fees. And so if they were able to commission a custom huge family that had all these other scripts in the end they're probably you know saving money making it more streamlined making it easier so i think that's another reason that actually gets overlooked a lot of the times is one company develops and they become international so how do you you know accommodate for that typographically with all your communication material my goodness yeah so i thought that was like a really interesting thing and one other perspective that I found very interesting as well is, you know, a lot of people are arguing, okay, all these brands have like, are making fonts that look similar. Christian Schwartz at Commercial Type says that with every new client who wants us to draw something custom, the first part of our process is to try to talk them out of it, just to make sure that they're doing it for the right reason, that they need something and there isn't something that exists already that could suit their needs perfectly. So I think that was like an interesting devil's advocate coming from a type foundry that just actually released a custom font for MailChimp, I think, yesterday. Oh, really? I didn't even see that. That's interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. Mm -hmm. But that's funny because that's exactly what we were talking about a few weeks ago with pricing, right? Like, that's what I try to do when my clients come through the door. It's Mm -hmm. like, hey, this is going to be expensive. Why do you need this? Do you need this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I thought that was really interesting. And then, you know, one other anecdote, because everyone's talking about the Goldman Sachs typeface that was designed by Dalton Mag recently, the New York Times reported on it, which is like pretty unusual for the type world to get into that sort of press. There was a lot of criticism of it, you know, saying it was very plain, it was boring, it was uninteresting, it was derivative. This is like, you know, what everything is wrong with making custom typefaces, what looks like a waste of someone's time. Like there was a lot of, you know, negativity around it in the article. I do want to say that the person that was in charge of the type design project at, you know, at Goldman Sachs said he wanted something that, you know, was a little bit more casual than the formal banking thing and gave these like more just simple parameters. But as you can imagine, like Goldman Sachs can't go crazy. Like, I don't know if it's really the mission of Goldman Sachs to stand out amongst a sea of typefaces like that. They have to be pretty practical. You know, you're dealing with lots of money on a day-to-day basis. I do like to criticize the fact that they try to put a legal term that says you can't disparage Goldman Sachs when you use the typeface, which is yeah, like that was actually a lot of, you know, font licensing lawyers said you 
that's actually quite hard to enforce and they're probably not likely to enforce it as well. I, I, I will also agree on the criticism that that's wild, but at the same time, the reason they made it the font free was not, I don't think really for personal and commercial use. It was for anyone that had used Goldman Sachs branding to have easy access to the font. That's a really interesting point. That seems like a side note, but that is actually a, a real issue with licensed fonts is that if you don't have the right license to be able to give it to people, sharing a font is illegal. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you know, making it open source means, cool, anybody can get it. Yeah, and I think, you know, we like talking about the differences between free fonts and open source fonts because I think that's sometimes, you know, a blurry line, but one that's certainly important to know. And then my last little point is that Helvetica, so Target has used a different version of Helvetica for quite a long time. And I think a lot of people like don't really know it. It's, I know it mostly because I've worked with Target quite a bit in the past on their brand materials. And, you know, so I always have to make sure I'm using Helvetica for Target. <laughs> and this is also an interesting hybrid version of using a font that exists and then also creating custom. The only differences, I think, there might be other really, really slight ones, but the only major differences between Helvetica and Helvetica for Target is that the dot of the I is circular instead of rectangular, like it is in regular Helvetica. And, and there's one other thing. Okay. There's a flare on the terminal of the A that is slightly more playful than the regular flare to help. Like a dog's tail. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because of their cute little dog base to use. So this is an interesting hybrid because I think Target probably didn't need a new typeface, but they wanted to modify it. And all of those little things make the Target Helvetica for Target a little bit more playful. And fun fact, I have a bunch of these custom fonts in front of me right now. I have Netflix Sans, Serial by Airbnb, San Francisco for Apple, and Roboto for Google. And all of these Sans Serif fonts have circular dots to the eyes. That's it's funny because me. I feel like whenever I was like modifying something for a logo, I was always like, shoot, mm -hmm. I want to make this a circle. Why isn't this a circle? I think that just so carried funny. over to the professional world. Yeah. I mean, I do think it adds playfulness. Also, the dot of the eye is typographically called a tittle, which I have not yet been 100% comfortable <laughs> saying that all the time. But Good thing you just it said it on the internet. You know, I just said it. It's out there. But the crossword, the New York Times crossword had that as one of their answers to a clue on like a Monday crossword, which is supposed to be the easy crossword. And I'm like, this is such an obscure fact. But maybe the whole world is just starting to use it now and think it's fun. So I'm going to start using it, guys. That you just got to own it. You just got to own it. Say I know. I know. I really do. I know. That's probably, uh, you know, this, this is probably also some other potential future topic that we can talk about is why Target was allowed to make their own version of Helvetica. I think that could be an interesting thing to talk about in the future. I was trying to find so much history on this and there's so little about it because I also know that, so this, the most new, the newest version of Helvetica for Target was actually made in 2014 and that has a Target included into their glyphs as well and has some other like Target T symbols included in their glyphs, but they've been using this Helvetica for a long time and I couldn't 
figure out when was the first instance it got designed in the first place. So I think the 2014 update was to update some glyphs. It wasn't necessarily to update the characters, but I know they've been using this for a long time, but it says nowhere when this was developed. So I'm so curious when it was, because I think it was before most of the like custom font trend has like picked up. So Holy. if anyone knows, please, please tell us. I, I tried <laughs> to find it. it. And I know Monotype worked on it because I think I found on Monotype's website, they're like, oh, we've worked alongside Target on their custom typeface, but it doesn't say when. And I'm so curious about the licensing for this. Right. I mean, to be fair, what I meant was how is a company allowed to say we have a custom version of a font that already exists? But I do also think that would be an interesting piece of history. You know, like, why are there multiple versions of Futura? Or, you know, something like that. I think it it would be interesting to dive into at some future Nerd Alert. I love all of the Bedonis out there. And when they're crappy Bedonis, I call them phony Bedonis. (laughs) That's from my type teacher, Michael Kelly. Pratt Institute. Love it. It's my favorite thing. All All right, right. So hopefully you learned a couple interesting things about the recent trends in brands making their own custom font and how that pertains to licensing, which is a thing that I think a lot of us who have to work with type, whether you're a designer or not, should get to know. So hopefully that was educational. Thanks for that awesome lesson, Olivia. I had a lot of fun diving into it. I'm really excited for licensing month. It's September, licensing month. That can be our new thing. (laughs) All right. So thank you everybody for joining us. As always, we love you. And we will see you next week with more great links and awesome educational topics. Later. Bye. See ya. Bye.